You're listening to Frontlines, a podcast for the people that truly make mountain biking happen. Not the riders, racers, or product designers, but the builders, advocates, and the often forgotten board members of your local mountain bike trail association. To celebrate the 50th episode of this podcast, I wanted to go back to the beginning. Oftentimes, once I've released an episode, I won't listen to it again. After the interview, multiple passes at editing, and some final quality checks, I'm happy to move on to the next episode. But as I began to think about what to do for this milestone of an episode, I thought it best to go back to the very beginning. In what started as a teaser and became the introduction to the very first episode of Frontlines MTB, I made a promise. And to kick off this episode, I wanted to renew that promise. This podcast is about the entire process, about every role that needs to be filled on a local trail association and how that's done all over the world. Some of us have different laws and different rider needs, but the vast majority of us maintain trails on land that isn't ours, and we can all learn from each other's success stories and perhaps even failures. And after 49 episodes, I'm still in no means an expert on the topics we've discussed or will continue discussing. What remains true is that the greatest thing about this global community of mountain biking is we can always find someone who is. And this show will continue to be a platform to listen and learn from a wide variety of guests and will continue to be a space for discussion to share our experiences. Make sure you listen to the end of the episode, too, for a special announcement. As always, I'm your host, Brent Hillier, and this is the 50th episode of Frontlines. Starting at the beginning, I needed a guest for episode one. I have to say it's been much easier emailing potential guests with a catalog of episodes behind me, with over 50 interviews under my belt. But having never recorded a podcast and having never performed an interview, I reached out to Jay Darby. Jay and I had a chance to grab a beer a few months earlier to our conversation, and I knew he'd have a lot to say on the topic of advocacy. The fact that he agreed to be guest number one was huge, and to this day, he remains a repeat guest of the podcast. One of the biggest takeaways from our conversation was this. I think you know the biggest thing that all organizations you know need from the community is buy-in. And it does, that doesn't mean like attending every event, you know, it means sure buying a membership is important, but in the end it's buying into what we're doing, you know, believing in the goal, believing in the process and understanding that it's, that it's a necessary thing to happen. We end up with more support. We end up with more people at trail days. We end up with more people at social events. You know, I think that's the key thing is just ensuring that, you know, you, you believe in what your local club is doing, or if you don't believe in what you're doing, if you think they're not, you know, meeting the demands of the community, stepping up and, and asking them what, why they're not doing what you think they should be doing or, or volunteering your time. And after speaking with Jay, I was excited to show off my own local trail association. I've, I've tried to not make front lines, the North shore mountain bike association show, but at the end of the day, I'm proud of what my community has done. There's a lot of people that were responsible for what was a writing of, of the ship. The organization was at the, the brink of, of total collapse. And as momentum started to roll and, and business started to become business as usual, a key leader in the organization in the last few years has been their executive director, Christine Reed. 
Not only was Christine the second guest of the podcast, but I honestly believe that she was my very first listener. And in episode 45, Christine was the very first guest host on the podcast. Christine has supported me in so many ways, and her episode will always be one of my favorites. And handing over the reins is something that I want to do more of. So if you're interested in hosting an episode, or you even just want to host a segment or do an interview, I want to hear from you. Both Jay and Christine are huge supporters of the show and great friends. Following my first two interviews with them, they were and continue to be a huge component of the behind the scenes. Whether it's a conversation or a simple email with a link of something they think I should read, their influence is interwoven into many of these episodes. And a great example of that is episodes six and seven. Jay emailed me a couple links and asked me if I had read them. And with that, I reached out to those writers and had them on the show. And episode six is with Eric McKeegan, and we discussed his article in Dirt Rag called A Presidential Speech for the Bike Industry. Eric wrote that, quote, the most basic duty of cycling media is to be the change we want to see, end quote. And I asked him what he meant by that. Since we get to represent and speak to more people than the average cyclist, that we have more responsibility to portray things in a way that we would like to see them being emphasizing things that uh, we think are important. And in, in this case, I was looking at the way that, you know, the, the generic cyclist is looked at as it, because there, there is a, a, you know, a sort of generic cyclist who's a, you know, 30 to 40 year old guy who is fit and Caucasian and rides nice bikes. And I think that while that is a valid representation of mountain biking there are also other valid representations and there's plenty of room for a wider group of people to be represented it was a bold article and the beginning of a conversation within mountain biking that needed to happen the greater outdoor industry has also begun to have that same conversation for episode seven that was something that i wanted to explore more of as much as this podcast is for mountain bikers, I never wanted to become an echo chamber for just mountain bikers. And Umbreen Tarek of At Brown People Camping was willing to share her different perspective and experience as a person of color in the outdoors. And something that Umbreen spoke to was how exclusive outdoor recreation can be and how in many ways the outdoors just isn't accessible. The outdoor space, regardless of what really what activity you're engaging in, the outdoor space is so much about extreme achievements right like how do you climb the highest summit how do you backpack the greatest length or how do you do something in the most minimal and extreme way and I think the admiration we have for the extreme in the outdoors kind of creates a culture for us to evaluate each other in that way and although Umbreen has experienced overtly racist encounters especially with respects to comments online she had this to say it's not about necessarily race and gender and other identities. It's a a pretty central issue that affects the outdoor community culture. And I think it absolutely affects people who want to try it. And it creates another bar for entry for folks who don't necessarily have experience with it. And that's where I think there is an overlap with diversity issues, but they are also independent issues. This conversation remains one of my favorites of the podcast, and Umbreen left us with some hope and a tangible goal. In this unique space, the lack of diversity in the outdoors is much more nuanced, and it's much more about people's inability to access the outdoors, not overt exclusion. And I think the call for action on my end is what we can all be doing to promote 
the outdoors more and to promote people who aren't necessarily re represented in the community to get out there to try it and how can we help that that experiential process that's that's what i truly believe how can i make a difference right i may not be able to solve the institutional racism that african americans face in america or that uh, affects communities of color from not having disposable income to buy camping gear. I may not be able to solve that, but I can certainly acknowledge that in my conversations. I can certainly talk about the reality of what's happening out there. And what I've learned recently is that people don't, a lot of people don't even agree with the premise that we need greater diversity. So we may not be able to solve these problems, but I think it's it's incumbent on us to acknowledge them. And I think what you're doing through this podcast is brilliant and is, is exactly what we need to be doing is push ourselves to have these conversations, acknowledge the problem, and then say that we need to work as a community to figure out solutions. There, there isn't an easy fix for a complicated problem. We've learned this over and over, but a big part of solving this problem is a culture shift that needs to happen. The culture shift being that we need to honestly acknowledge that there are, there, there's a high bar of entry to a lot of outdoor activities and that uh, we all play a very important role in developing a culture that values the outdoors. And if we can do that, that's the first step in helping promoting this lifestyle and then helping find ways that we can grow our community together and that, that is actually a major priority for all of us, not just people of color, but for white people and everyone else that growing our community is critical for our environment as a whole and to maintain it for future generations. Many episodes to come after this were inspired by my conversation with Umbreen Tarek. A major barrier for mountain biking is access to trails. Mountain biking can often require a car ride to a trail network. And Joshua Rebinock joined me in episode eight, in addition to being a trail builder with the Cayuna Lakes mountain bike crew, he's an urban trails expert. Joshua spoke about using the ratio of 1 to 10 or 1 to 20, meaning one mile of trail will fit into 10 or 20 acres, or a kilometer will fit into 2 to 4 hectares. I asked Joshua why legal urban trails are so important. So if you have legal trails, you're going to have more people that's going to find them. You're going to have that guy who has the Walmart bike in his garage. The trails go in couple blocks away at whatever park and he's going to take that bike down go ride those trails he's going to enjoy it and now he's going to be enjoying mountain biking also and the community members that don't mountain bike what they're going to see is, is that those trails have people on them that are maybe a little different than what they think of as being mountain bikers people that you know aren't just a sort of red bull athlete you know, throw myself off a cliff guy, but actually their dentist, their lawyer, their accountant, whatever. In other words, they're going to see their neighbors mountain biking. One other way that we can begin to shift what the average mountain biker looks like is through youth programs. In episode 10, Bruce Martins joined me. At the time, he was with the National Interscholastic Cycling Association, or, or NICA. And although some participants of these programs are avid cyclists already, there's also the other end of the spectrum. We, you know, have kids who didn't really fit with the traditional ball and stick sports, uh, didn't fall into the conventional uh, after school sport structure. They they pick up cycling. This is an uh, individual as well as a team sport. It's it's not um, 
mainstream, if you will. And, and so we get a lot of people who come in never really having had uh, uh, an experience on the mountain bike before wanting to try something new and different. Uh, so a good, a good cross section of, of both those ends of the spectrum. And as you can imagine, uh, people who fall somewhere in between. Bruce Martins is now with the Loppet Foundations. I hope to have him back on the show in the new year. Now, a NICA chapter in Minnesota even went as far as creating a nonprofit that advocated for new trails. Here's Kelvin Jones of the Stillwater Area Scholastic Cycling Advocates from episode 41. The city politicians want to see local faces. They, they want to see their, their constituents show up. So when we go in front of people, we can carry our, our team. This is how important lo- lo- the local aspect is. We can go to, to Oak Park Heights and have, oh, here's a big flood of 90s, you know, young kids. The city council wants to know, okay, which one of you live in Oak Park Heights? Which one of those parents can vote for me? That episode we also heard from Hank Gray. Every one of those kids, again, has guardians and parents, some of whom, uh, not all of them, some of whom want to learn how to bike. They want to, some of them are interested in helping to build or maintain trails. They want to volunteer. Nowadays, most kids have to put in volunteer time, both for school requirements and also our own team. On the topic of youth, we also heard from Mike Greer in episode 40. He's the executive director of Elevation Outdoors in Kelowna, BC. One of the things that their program does is provide their students with an exit survey. It was uh, last winter, 2017, for a snowboard program, for example, we had 100% of the participants tell us that their self-confidence improved as a direct result of the program. Same with mountain biking, very high percentage of youth that fill out the exit survey coming back saying, you know, got more self-confidence. I feel, you know, better able to interact with my peers in a bit of a stressful situation. So it's those kinds of benefits, especially as mental health is a growing challenge for young people today to have a, to have a stronger sense of self-confidence can really just set them up for greater success in life. It really is more than just getting kids on bikes. When you look at successful youth programs all over the world, you see what we might define as the beneficial side effects of cycling. Episode four was the first time we heard from Patrick Lucas of the Aboriginal Youth Mountain Bike Program, and we spoke about the perception that's out there that the bike is the barrier to access. Every community that I've been to, there's always a whole bunch of kids who are out riding, you know, they don't have the greatest bikes, you know, a lot of time they're really simple and they're not very great shape, but they're out there riding. They're building their own little trails. They're building their own little jump tracks and largely on their own. And it's something that's not really on the radar of the community leadership, but it's something that kids are doing. So if there's anything that we do, it's really, we, we try to work with the leadership and the, and the adults and families in the community and kind of put this on their radar and show them what their kids are already doing. And then we help the kids. We just enhance their skills. So we, we bring in professional mechanics who can actually train them and teach them how to build and maintain their bikes. We help them get access to more affordable parts through local bike stores. Uh, We bring in professional instructors who teach them how to ride and really encourage them to wear their helmets and we help them get access to helmets. And more, most importantly, in my view, is that we help the, the leadership to see that this is something their kids are already doing and all they have to do is really support it and help them uh, to do it properly. Kids generally have bikes and those that don't can get them. Show me a kid who wants a bike and I will find them a bike. 
I guarantee you that in all of my friends and followers on Facebook, there's someone out there that has a bike that's collecting dust in a garage. It might need some maintenance, but there's an opportunity to even empower that rider. Something that really struck me while speaking with Patrick was the concept of mountain biking being a tool to achieve a much bigger objective. And in Canada, for those of us who are descended from settlers, we've been having the conversation of reconciliation and what that means and what that might look like. Yeah, it really, I think, has opened my eyes to what it means to be a non-Indigenous person living in Canada and kind of grappling with that history. I think for a lot of people that can be uh, almost an ex- existential crisis. Like if you really open your mind to accepting how our country was, how this country was developed on a legacy of colonialism and genocide, the implications of that can be really terrifying. Because what does it mean for us as non-Indigenous people here if we 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 accept that those things happened? Does it mean that our our status as Canadians, our our country is illegitimate? Um, and that can be a really tough questions to ask because then what happens after that where do we go from here so i think the experiences that we've had with building trails and having those conversations with uh our our indigenous colleagues and friends is we've learned that it doesn't have to be an existential crisis we can we can acknowledge that those things happened and we can learn how to work together and share these territories you know no indigenous person that i know has ever said we want you to leave you know it's more like we want you to understand that being here is about accepting the past acknowledging that we share these lands and working together to move forward and those conversations at time can be uncomfortable uh and kind of scary but when we work through them together we all come out of it as fuller human beings and we can figure out a way of moving forward and that's I think the absolutely most important lesson that I've learned out of this entire experience has been about that. And it's been amazing to watch, you know, the riding community, folks who've grown up in these communities their whole lives. They're not Indigenous, but they've lived here all their lives. A lot of the time neighboring with First Nation communities that they never had a real opportunity to interact with. And you get these people out on the land, building trails together and coming out of it as, as friends and colleagues with relationships that are based on mutual respect and trust and that to me is the the best thing that's come out of this this program in episode 42 i spoke with len nesifer ceo of natives outdoor and he had this to say about the land that we use for recreation in north america can't deny that most of the recreation that we do is occurring on the ancestral homelands of many native people and the creation of the lands that we have, the public land systems and why we can recreate it is then predicated on the removal and erasure of Native people from those areas. I asked Len if the use of the word tribe by the outdoor industry is an example of cultural appropriation. I really just see it as being a reflection of how much um, folks don't know about Native people and that the legal and political implications of that particular term, there's quite a lot. It's quite a loaded term. And I just, I just think it's unfortunate, but I also just see it reflective of that most people just aren't aware of that or don't think about that history when they use that word or when they're recreating. So more than anything, like, you know, I think if people are listening and hear this and now, you know, <laughs> in episode 43, I interviewed Patrick Lucas again, 
It was right after he had completed his best practices and guidelines for engaging and working with Indigenous peoples on trails and outdoor recreation projects. And I asked him what he meant with the phrase, making decisions in a good way. People would often talk about that and they'd say, you know, if we're, we're going to do this plan or we're going to do this project, we have to do it in a good way. And I came to understand that that meant that making sure there was a strong focus on the process, the, the way that people came together to make decisions with a priority on inclusion, equality, honesty, uh, and focusing on community priorities around protecting, enhancing the natural world and the land and ensuring the cultural survival of uh, their people. And for them, no decision, nothing could come, nothing good could come from a decision that wasn't done in a good way. You know, so if decisions are forced on a community or um, are done in a way that doesn't follow these types of priorities, and for them, it invariably will lead to neg- negative outcomes. Um, it ha- so the focus is always on making sure that the process is done in a way that can lead to good outcomes. So it's doing things in a good way. I think that concept is something that we as mountain bike advocates need to emulate. It goes back to what we just heard from Joshua Rebinock. Legal trails are good for the community. And that's not just the community of current mountain bikers or mountain bikers at all. Joshua Rebinock even went as far as comparing illegal trails to the prohibition of alcohol. When something is illegal, you can't manage it. You can't control it. Uh, Here in this country in the 20s, of course, was prohibition on alcohol. And what happened? Well, the only people that were interested in being involved in distributing alcohol and fulfilling a need were the people who were criminals or at least didn't care about authority. And the results, of course, were negative. Well, the same thing can happen with mountain biking. If you've made it illegal, if there's no legal outlet for it, the only people that are going to be riding the trails, the only people who are going to be building these trails, are largely people who aren't going to care about authority. And if it goes on long enough, that can develop into a prohibition syndrome where everybody kind of believes the authority is wrong in some way. So legal trails help with the management. During my three-part series looking at various umbrella-style organizations, we heard from Thomas Schoen of the Caribou Mountain Bike Consortium in episode 11, and he spoke on the advantages of legal trails. We want our trails protected. We want as many riders on our trails. It increases our our chances um, on funding. We can keep the trails maintained. And right now, I can give you a really good example in Williams Lake. Uh, we we the 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 forest surrounding the 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 community of Williams Lake has, has a recent uh, beetle attack. Uh, trees need to be taken out. Uh, it's done. By, by helicopter logging or by on-ground crews. So a lot of our trails are impacted. A lot of those trails were built by volunteers anywhere between the 1990s and now. And, and those trails are all protected. So if, if, if a logging company comes in, they need to do beetle salvage uh, logging in those areas. They have to negotiate with us through the government, through rec sites and trails. We have a stake. Uh, we'll talk to them. 
they give us money to 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 repair the damage that's done to the trails and that gets back to to the riders or to the volunteer trail builders who are somewhat opposed to to that whole system of of legal trails and it 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 changes their their mind and it changes their their behavior because they see hey it, there is something to having a legal trail network because all of a sudden my work is protected i don't have to worry about these trails being taken down. Joshua laid out the facts for all mountain bikers when it comes to legal versus illegal trails. And if you're asking a city council or a state board or a county board to give you permission to build trails, it's awfully hard to sit there and say, well, we're, we're this mature group that is going to raise this money and we're going to manage these trails and we're going to build these trails and we're going to maintain these trails. And, and, and we're just like any other user group that you guys have dealt with. In fact, we may be better than some, and at the same time, be riding things illegally and be building trails on land that you don't have permission to build trails on. And unfortunately, I think a lot of the mountain biking community needs to decide. You know, are we going to put our big boy pants on and be blunt about it and say, Illegal riding is wrong. Illegal trail building is wrong. No ifs, ands, or buts. Or are we not? Are we going to be liars? Or are we not? President uh, John F. Kennedy, when talking about sort of the idea of going to the moon, said, well, we want to do it not because it's easy, but because it's hard. Well, maybe as mountain bikers, we need to kind of say to ourselves, we want to ride and build trails legally, not because it gets us more trails but because it's the right thing to do. When it comes to the conversation around illegal trails, a big issue that remains is how mountain biking is portrayed in mountain bike media. In episode 23, I spoke about this with Steve Sheldon, at the time trail director and now vice president of the Tri-Cities Off-Road Cycling Association. I would much rather have our builders and our volunteers working towards improving the existing trail network or even building new trails to add onto the network rather than constantly chasing all of these rogue things and cleaning up the mess left by people who just wanted their quick little video edit or their 15 minutes of fame or just wanted to look cool or feel cool or, or whatever reason they use to create this. I just wish that there was more forethought into the implication of what their actions lead into long term. This touches on capacity. As a nonprofit trail association, there are limitations on what we can do. And ideally, we want to maximize our efforts to be able to benefit the greatest amount of people. And one topic that was touched on very early in the podcast was adaptive mountain biking. All the way back in episode three, I spoke with Terry Giannis of Terry Giannis Industries about what trail associations can do to open up some trails to adaptive mountain bikes. And Terry Giannis joined us again to discuss the topic in episode 44 with a panel discussion, along with three other adaptive riders. Now, when I prepared for that particular episode and I started to write my intros for each guest, I realized that each of them weren't just adaptive riders, but also advocates for adaptive trails or adaptive bikes. I just wanted to get back out, you know, on the mountain. And um, in order to do that, I think that when I started to do that, um, I found so many barriers in the way that, um, you know, you could try to talk to other people about, 
you know, working on it for you and this and that. But when you're the one in the situation, you have a real vested interest in trying to find ways around that and to, to get people's attention, I guess, to, to try to help you in that quest. For the majority of us, we make the choice to advocate for trails. And sometimes we make the choice because nobody else is, and there can certainly be some self-serving benefits, but we get to choose to be a trail advocate. In the context of diversity, there are a number of advocates that, like Tara, are in a situation. And a big one that comes to mind for me is people of color, who do not feel safe in certain places, and in order to change that, Oftentimes, they need to advocate for themselves or no one else will. Now, the theme of diversity is going to come up again in the next episode of the podcast as we hear from the BC Mountain Bike Advocacy Symposium. There's a number of episodes planned in the new year around this topic as well. One of the first real breakout episodes of the podcast was episode five, where we heard from Carrie Karsgaard about inappropriate trail names. I think we need to really think about the implications of our names, whether it's their they're racialized or whether they're sexist or um, what have you and have those conversations in the context of our communities and what those names mean and acknowledging that what might not be a problem for one person doesn't mean that that name is acceptable so I think sometimes when when we're in a position of privilege as I know I in many ways am things that that don't harm me or not offensive to me, that doesn't mean those things aren't problematic. It might mean just that I'm blind to them. And so I do my best to recognize, oh, where, what am I missing here? How am I not seeing how this, this name or this term might be offensive or discriminatory to someone else? And I think it's within, within the scope for, for other people to call those things to our attention, to draw them to mind, to say, you know what, this is, no, this isn't acceptable. This is, exclusive or this is discriminatory and then for me to listen and think oh just because i hadn't recognized that before doesn't mean it's not true this conversation continues to come up from time to time and i still see new downloads of that episode what's interesting about this conversation is i often see many people who think that it's an attack on mountain biking's fun history of edgy names And I do think the conversation about trail names should happen, but the trail names that really need to be changed are the ones that are racist, sexist, and derogatory. The trail in question is in Kelowna, BC, and at the time I asked Jay Darby for his thoughts on whether or not mountain biking can keep its quote-unquote rough-around-the-edges brand while trying to be more inclusive at the same time. I think there's space for the mountain bike community to be open and inclusive of, of all people while still remaining, you know, a, a renegade activity or, or you know, a, a, a fringe sport if we want to, you know, still frame ourselves as that. But I think it's important that we, you know, the key for me is we don't want to discriminate against other people. You know, political correctness is a is something that if there's a, uh, a scale of political correctness. And I think, you know, being funny and having, you know, innuendo and stuff in trail names is is fun to a point as soon as it starts to discriminate against people or it marginalizes a group of people you know as soon as you start to get into that power relationship thing where, where we're taking power away from somebody by by using like really inappropriate names i think it's important we don't or we we look at ourselves and go we don't want to do that because we want to encourage everybody to participate in mountain biking mountain biking's strength is in its community Mountain biking is a social activity, 
but our community doesn't reflect the greater community that surrounds it. I encourage all advocates to look at the demographic information for your city or town and then compare that to your membership. I'm willing to guess that there's a number of identities that aren't being represented within your organization. Something that I've heard over and over from people is that, but mountain biking isn't saying you can't participate or we're not being exclusive. But what we need to understand is that space needs to be made for new riders to feel comfortable. If you don't see anyone that looks like you, then you might not be able to see yourself participating. Here's Hansi Johnson from episode 33 when he shared how Duluth had evolved into the ride center that it is. I think the one mistake a lot of trails groups make, and not just in mountain biking, but in outdoor recreation in general, is they think they, we think too small sometimes. We can be very, unintentionally, we can be very selfish because a lot of times it comes from us as an end user. We want to create more trails because we want more trails, right? And, and even I'll hear, I'll hear it come out of folks' mouths, they'll talk a great game, but that still is the end result. And uh, I really challenge groups to, to think about how whatever it is they're investing in to think much, much bigger and how that's going to impact the community as a whole. Like what, what is the true result of this beyond just more riders? Like what, what is it going to do on the grand scale? I've said it many times, but I don't know what the Canadian, uh, the Canadian analogy would be, but you know, our, our local groups are becoming like the next Elks club or the next Shriners, you know, or whatever that is, right. They're, they're literally social groups. They're not just a mountain bike group anymore. They're actually impacting change on a much bigger level than just mountain biking. And that, that narrative and that story is really, really important, but also really powerful when it comes to all these other folks, you have to get on board. And uh, if they realize, okay, this is beyond just, you know, these folks getting on their bikes and jumping on the trail, this is actually going to make much bigger, broader change. And, and I also say that when, when I say that is um, in some of the things I've learned since, you know, I've worked both with him by now in the role that I'm working in now is that it's very easy to say that, but it's also very hard to truly show it. And one of my favorite lines from Hansi, and, and something that I reference constantly is this. You know, it's great to say mountain bikes will, you know, get more at, at risk youth outside or, you know, you name, the, you name the social right that it will create, but you need to be able to draw the direct line to what that is and why. And the way that you can draw that direct line is by partnering with other groups in your community. Do you have an LGBTQ2 group in town? Do you have a trans cycling club? Ask if they're hosting any events and if you can help, sponsor them, and simply make space for those other communities within yours. Here's Hansi once again. Too often I found, you know, at some point myself and other mountain bike advocates as well, it was really easy to tell a really quick, easy elevator speech narrative about how mountain biking was going to be good for everybody. But as soon as you dug under the surface, it's really hard to find those really, truly shining examples of where it is truly broadly making change unless you're intentionally doing it. This podcast is all about learning from others. And when it comes from learning from other clubs, here's Joshua Rebinock one more time. Does your club have the humility, does your city have the humility to learn from people who maybe are outside your bubble? And here's why I always ask that one. Right now in the United States, the really awesome, interesting mountain biking sort of methods and process are not coming from the coasts. 
They're coming from places that are basically the Louisiana Purchase. Places like Bentonville and Fayetteville, Arkansas, Minnesota, Wisconsin, believe it or not, Nebraska, Missouri, Knoxville, Tennessee, and Western Tennessee. So, you know, if somebody is writing me and they're from Burbank, California, the question is, would you or your city be willing to take the lessons from one of those places and apply it to your city? If there has to be some sort of Skype interview back and forth, is it, are you, as a member of your trail association, are you going to be like, oh, my goodness, this guy is talking to me, and he has a Pioneer Seed baseball cap and a Wrangler flannel shirt on while he's talking to me? That, that can be a problem, believe it or not. And so you have to ask yourself, can I, can I listen to this person if they're from a different part of the country can I understand whatever problems or issues they had to deal with, I'm probably having to deal with too. And can their solutions work for me? Since my first interview with Joshua, he's created citymtb.org. It's a resource for developing and creating urban trails, and I highly recommend you check it out. Something that I've made clear on the podcast is that because mountain biking takes place in this world, then it cannot be an escape from this world. Using sports as an escape is a privilege that many don't have. Being able to escape from politics mean that your rights aren't being infringed on. If mountain biking remains a safe space for us middle-aged straight white guys to ignore the problems of the world, then we risk it becoming a sanctuary for middle-aged straight white guys. And eventually, when we're all dead, the sport of mountain biking will die along with us. And sports die all the time. I live an hour away from what was the windsurfing capital of Canada. Nobody's there windsurfing anymore. As for alternatives, there's no shortage of mountain biking podcasts out there. I created my podcast because I wanted to share the perspective of underrepresented individuals in our community. That includes trail builders and advocates, but it also includes women, people of color, and the LGBTQ2 community. When I began this process two years ago, I was having a crisis of confidence. And to be honest, I, I've had a few in my life. At the time, I was struggling with the thought of a sport that seemed to be stuck in the past, both socially and ethically. I was about to become a father, and the world around me became even more important than it was previously. The two main concerns for mountain biking that I saw were this. Number one, that the majority of the quote-unquote heavy lifting was being done by a select few passionate people. It seemed that the vast majority of mountain bikers were not only being lazy, but selfish. And number two, was in a world that needed to progress so much, maybe mountain biking wasn't the most important thing for me to focus on. Perhaps there were some other sports that were more socially conscious out there. Before I walked away, I decided to issue one last address. At the time, it felt like the plaque on board the Pioneer 10 spacecraft. I was addressing someone who I didn't know existed. When Jimmy Carter made his famous Crisis of Confidence speech on July 15, 1979, he didn't hold back. He spoke directly to the American people and called them out. I can only imagine how uncomfortable it must have felt having someone tell you what you've done wrong as you and your family are sitting on the couch watching TV in your living room. The response to President Carter was not positive. He only served one term after losing his election to Ronald Reagan the following year in 1980. Here's a quick little snippet of that speech, and I highly recommend you listen to the complete thing. Too many of us now tend to worship self-indulgence and consumption. Human identity 
is no longer defined by what one does, but by what one owns. But we've discovered that owning things and consuming things does not satisfy our longing for meaning. We've learned that piling up material goods cannot fill the emptiness of lives which have no competence or purpose. The first seven episodes of Frontline's MTB included conversations about what was wrong with mountain biking. It was a manifesto of what needed to change. But instead of releasing episodes to an audience that wasn't there, you stood up and proved to me how great mountain biking is and how hard each community is working to not only change cycling in their community, but change the greater world that is around all of us. While attending the Western Mountain Bike Advocacy Symposium last month, I met people from all over who saw value in not only having a conversation about diversity, but also left with a charge to put into motion the action and follow through that is needed. And when it comes to the front lines of mountain bike advocacy, I am not alone. We are not alone. You're not alone. So what's next? At the end of the month, I'm up for election on my local trail association board. No matter the results, I plan to follow through on the things that I see value in. But when it comes to this podcast specifically, I promise to keep rolling out conversations for as long as you keep listening. So what's planned for the next 50 episodes? All I can really say is lots. The episode topics evolve kind of week to week, and and I do have a plan, but it it constantly changes and, and shifts around. And as mentioned at the, the top of the episode, I do have a special announcement. So very recently, it's it's just happened, I've now formed a, a partnership with Mountain Bike Radio. So if you listen to other mountain bike podcasts, uh, you might be familiar and you should be familiar with Mountain Bike Radio. And so they're going to be supporting me with a lot of different things, equipment, tech support, and they're also going to be sharing each new episode on their app and on their feed as well. So look out for episode 51 and the changes that are coming along. You're still going to be able to get the episode on this feed, so you don't need to do anything. But if you are interested in listening to some other great mountain bike podcasts, then I highly recommend you go over to Mountain Bike Radio. Now, if you want to contribute to an episode, just reach out, let me know. As always, you can find the show on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter at FrontlinesMTB. And you can send me an email or audio file to info at FrontlinesMTB.com. You can stream the show on Apple Podcasts, Google Play, Stitcher, SoundCloud, and YouTube. And if you haven't done so already, leave a review on wherever you get the show. It helps others find the podcast. Don't forget to support the show via PayPal. You can find a link in the show notes, along with a link to the Frontline's MTB Book Club, where a portion of any purchase made on Amazon after following those links will be sent to the podcast. I've got lots of links in the show notes for all the guests that I've mentioned in this episode. Music, as always, is by Lee Rosevear, production notes by Jennifer Pride, artwork is created by Brandon Gallagher-Watson, and BGW Creative. Now, just coming back from Grand Rapids, Michigan, and the 2018 Mountain Bike State Summit, I got a lot of positive, great feedback from people there. They enjoy the show, they enjoy what's happening. So I wanted to give some of the last words to this episode to Jay Darby, and he actually called in to say thanks. Hey Brent, Jay Darby here. I'm just calling in to say congratulations on 50 episodes, as well as give you a big verbal hug and thank you for the contribution your show has made to the mountain bike advocacy world. You've given our community a platform to share stories, vent our frustrations, and collaborate on new ideas. I'm humbled that you made me a part from the beginning, and that I was able to participate in a number of episodes along so many other passionate and dedicated individuals. 
I see a bright future for mountain biking, and a part of this vision is formed by the inspiring minds across the globe, advocating for our sport and its ability to change lives. Cheers to you and every one of the amazing individuals who led their voices to the show. Here's to 50 more, bud. And that's that. Episode 50. And all I can say is thank you. And look at 100. Finally, I'm Brent Hillier. This is Frontlines. Thanks for listening, and happy trails.